Not good. Hey, good morning. If you're new with us, my name is Chris Pate. We are in a series today on parables, and we're very excited about parables. I want to dive right in today looking at the parables of Jesus, and we're doing it because we love the story that Jesus brings. How many of you guys love story? Anybody? Yeah? You know you spent time on Netflix, probably more time searching for a story to watch. Uh, than anything, and just trying to find something. We crave, we're addicted to stories because we find ourselves in the story. We maybe escape our current story and get in somebody else's drama for a little bit instead of our own. And stories in themselves kind of keep us moving. I'm thankful that Jesus decided to bring story to explain what the kingdom of God is. And he came in and said, hey, there's a different way to live. You have your ideas, your story, your current ideas of what you are, religious ideas, philosophical ideas, political ideas. But let me tell you the stories about how the kingdom actually works. And he does that. So we're going through this for the next couple of weeks. And here's the purpose of our parables. If you check it on the screen, the purpose of this parable series is to connect the stories of the kingdom of God to our everyday lives as Jesus opens up this story, not just bullet points of what to do and what not to do, but a story, it opens up our heart to be able to enter into the greater story of God. So if you have your Bible, grab it or turn it on, light it up or check out the screen. We will be in Luke chapter 7, 36 through 50 as we dive into the story or the parable of the two debtors. Here's what it says, verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, 
for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I hope you brought your still-toe boots today because this is a harsh truth. This is Jesus rebuking someone as we see two different sets of people. One of the things I hope you learn as we're learning, as we look at these parables each week, is that anytime Jesus says, I have a story to tell, or I have something to tell you, you should run. Because he's about to throw a grenade out there. Not a physical grenade, but an intellectual, spiritual grenade, and it will go off. There is a reason why Jesus was killed. You understand this. We have this idea that I love, I, I love Jesus. I just don't really like church. I just don't really like religion. But Jesus, man, I love Jesus. Let me tell you, there was a lot of love lost on him because... He wasn't there just to make everybody feel good. He was there to challenge the very foundation and heart of their beliefs. And we need to keep in mind this, that first of all, Jesus is invited in this story to the home of Simon, who's a Pharisee. And Pharisees at the time, they were typically rich and they were religious leaders. Jesus often was very critical with Pharisees, almost more than anybody else. He was not shy about criticizing the religious, which is kind of a lot of what we like about Jesus. He's not afraid to do that. As a result, most Pharisees generally would have nothing to do with Jesus. They felt him more contentious and competition. But what's interesting about Simon is he invited him to his house with a sign of affection, wanting him to have some kind of relationship with him. So Simon was special, similar to like Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night. He was interesting. He was a seeker for some reason. So he wasn't just obstinate against Jesus. He wanted to learn more. There was a sense of openness that you didn't see in the other Pharisees. So there's curiosity. There was spiritual interest. So this is good. And it's beautiful that Jesus, he would get completely destroyed for going and, and staying with sinners, drunkards, and going to their house by the Pharisees. But Jesus also went to the religious leader's house if he was invited. He did not show favoritism in that way. If anybody invites him, he comes. And he invites him into his home, and Jesus is reclining as he eats because they didn't sit in chairs at the time. They would actually lay down, recline. They'd have one elbow, typically the left side, on a, on a pillow or some kind of cushion, and they would eat with their right hand. So if you ever see these pictures of the disciples and Jesus, and they're around a table and they're sitting on chairs, that is a horrible depiction of what actually happened. And they would relax. Wouldn't you like to do that? Go to Lupe Tortilla today after service? Say, I don't need a table, guys. I got this. You bring your pillow out, relax. And it's actually good, they say, for digestion to lay, to lean on your left side and eat. So let's go for it. I dare you. How awesome are you? 
So he's reclining, and we're told a woman came behind him, came to his feet, and began to weep and wipe his feet with her tears, as we just read. And she poured this perfume on his feet. And it says she was a simmer, a sinner. She had a bad reputation. It doesn't come out and say she was a prostitute, but most theologians believe that was the main sin they would cast on a woman like this, that she was a prostitute, more than likely. Simon immediately says, this guy, Jesus, he says he's divine, okay? If he was really divine, he'd know what this woman is, who she is. He would know who she is. He would know she's a sinner. He'd know she's a prostitute. If he's really a prophet, he would know these things. So already feeling good about himself, if he was really divine, he wouldn't have anything to do with her. And what you have to realize is, This is a really amazing situation. A lot of times we read the Bible and we don't put ourselves in it. And yet we need to, to understand what's really going on. So you can imagine being in like Lupe Tortilla, one of our favorite restaurants. We call Lupe our fifth elder here around here because we always have Lupe Tortilla when we have our elders meetings and it's fun. But imagine you're there and you're with a group of friends and y'all rented out the party room and all of a sudden a prostitute comes in and gets down on your feet and starts weeping and kissing your feet. Imagine the awkwardness of the situation. Imagine the laughs or stares or frowns or why is she doing this to Jesus? Does he know her? Mm? Cancel that, dude. Is that too harsh? It was an extraordinary thing at that time. It would be an extraordinary thing now. So you need to understand what was happening. And Jesus could have been embarrassed of her. He could have shooed her away. Even culturally, it would have been acceptable. He could have been afraid of all the eyes and everything, but that's not what Jesus did. Jesus, as he's known to do as a prophet, it's interesting, Simon is going, yeah, what some kind of prophet? You don't even know who this woman is. And Jesus is perceiving his thoughts because Jesus reads your mail. It's very ironic. He perceives Simon not only disproves, but actually says to himself, this proves he's not a prophet at all. And Jesus, I love it. He says, hey, let me tell you a story. Throw a grenade. And I love it because he's like, is it okay? And the guy's like, sure, teach me. (laughs) Isn't God good like that? All the time. And all the time, God is good. He says, I have a story. So he tells this story, and Jesus talks about these two debtors. Both of them owe a lender money. We can understand this analogy a little bit. Most of us are in debt to some way, maybe a bank, mortgage, credit card. And they definitely understand this because most people were in debt at the time. Their taxes were anywhere from 40 to 50. Some scholars say in certain times, definitely famine, up to 70% taxes between the temple, tithe, and Roman nation. You think you're mad about your taxes. You're owing a lot of money. It's a beautiful story that should pierce our heart. It says they both owe this lender money and The problem is neither one of them can pay. And the the problem here is, is you don't just go to collections or try to figure it out. You go to prison. And then in prison, it's impossible to pay a debt because you are in prison. You can't make money. You're stuck. 
So in one case, you have a debtor that owes the lender 500 denarii, which is roughly, roughly two years annual wages. This is a lot. This is a huge debt. But on the other hand, you've got a 50 denarii, which is about two months wages, but it's still a lot. Both cases go to prison. The point is that both of them owed the lender. Don't just get hooked up on the money. Both of them owed the lender. Neither of them could pay ever. The lender forgives both. And Jesus says, now who probably would be more in love with the lender? Who would have more joy and adoration to the lender? And Simon thinks about it, says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. He's confronted. He understands what Jesus is saying, and we need to dive into this. And this is where and why you have to be careful to say, okay, when Jesus says, I've got something to tell you. He turns around and he says this, Simon, you and this woman are the two debtors in essence. You're both in debt. This woman shows me love. This woman shows me passionate worship. This woman has come and has embraced me, has loved me in this way. You have not. You're the debtor and she's the debtor in this parable. And this speaks to both all of us. And the reason why this statement is teaching is so important is because you have these two people. So you've got the woman, right? You've got Simon, who both, listen to this, they want to see Jesus. They both are in the presence of Jesus. They both are listening to Jesus, invited to the home, go to the home. Both want his teaching, but only one of them is transformed by the teaching. One of them is absolutely blown away, and one of them is erupting with love and joy, and her life is absolutely transformed, and the other is detached, cool, somewhat interested. One of them, of course, is sent away condemned and confused and annoyed, and the other one is sent away totally changed. So why the difference? We need to look at this. We need to understand what is Jesus, what is the Scripture trying to convey to us? This is so important because like right now in this room, right now where we are, Jesus is here. The presence of Jesus is here. He promises to be here. You're not in my presence. You're not in G's presence, although G is close to Jesus. You're not here ultimately just to listen to people from the stage. I hope not. That's all you're after. He is able to do the same thing in our lives that he did to this woman life, to go in peace, to forgive, to love, to embrace, because his presence is here. So when we come here and we read about him, we worship him, we're getting in the scripture together, which is a beautiful thing, we are in the presence of Jesus. And I'm showing you and everybody here today as we look at this, because I think this is what Jesus wants to do in our church, in our, in, in our life through the parables, is look at us and say, are you like the woman or are you like Simon? And maybe you have times of both. Maybe you've never considered it. And I believe there's something really powerful in this parable with these two people. So everyone, even today, will go away from this room like Simon detached, unaffected, maybe a little confused. Why is that dude wearing white shoes? Maybe a little angry. Why do I have to wear a mask? 
or like the woman totally transformed in the presence of Jesus? Question is, and I think this is what the scripture asks us as we read, is which are you? Are you like Simon? Are you like the woman? And how do we explain the difference? And that's what we're going to do the rest of this time. Because two people are in front of the same person, in front of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, yet one is changed and one's not. One is even praised by Jesus. He says, she did this, you did this, you did this. And if you know this, if you've ever had someone you highly admire praise you, there's no feeling like it. You're just like, oh, man. And the other one is condemned. One is praised, the other condemned. One change, one unchanged. But what makes the difference? So I'm going to show you the difference between these two spiritual conditions. This is where we're going to spend our time. And we're going to play doctor for a second. We're close to the medical center. We're practically in the medical center. So we're going to play doctor. Any doctors in the house? Yeah? Yeah? No? Nurses? Medical field? You're scared? You're like, I, I don't want to be Simon. I'm scared. Okay. <laughs> We're going to play doctor. What we're going to do is we're going to look at some symptoms. We're going to look at conditions. We're going to look at causes. Let's look at some of the symptoms that we see. So we, we've got to take some tests. When you go to the doctor's office, you take some tests to try to figure out who is who, where you are, what's hurting, why is it hurting, these types of things anytime you go to the doctor. And when we go to Dr. Jesus and he's thrown the grenade of a story, we have to go, what is it you're trying to say? How is this going to change my life? And how come it changes this one person dramatically? in freedom, and it doesn't affect this person as much. So let's think about this for a second. And the way I want to picture it is the idea, and you see this a lot even in our culture, the idea behind someone who is truly a Christian and changed, not just by name, but they are walking with God, they love God, they are passionate about God, their life is centered around God, and someone who is just religious, going through the motions, does the stuff, but it's never penetrated their heart, even though they think it has. And you have these two individuals. So the difference between real Christianity and just mere religion. And you see this between the woman and Simon. And there's some basic symptoms. You see, Simon comes to Jesus in a very intellectual, detached kind of way. When I say detached, not his whole heart, like the woman comes, her whole being, everything. And you can imagine Simon's reaction when Jesus says this, Simon, why didn't you kiss me? Why didn't you hug me? Why didn't you weep over me when I came in? Can you imagine some of us that are super like, yeah. We would be thinking, what do you mean? You're kidding, right? I invited you to my house. What do you want from me? Brought you to my house. Come on, we're having a nice little chat. We're having a nice little conversation. It's safe. You don't really expect me to embrace you and weep and fall down like one of those crazy people. To receive you with this kind of passion and this kind of drama. And here's the deal. Jesus goes, yeah, I actually do expect that. What does that do to our religiosity a lot of times? See, the difference you could see between Simon and the woman is this. Simon comes in this intellectual detached way. When I say detached, I mean just in mind, but not, as we read a couple weeks ago, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with everything that you are. That is the call. And Simon 
has disintegrated his life into certain areas and pockets, and we're going to see why. He doesn't have his whole self there. He's not really letting Jesus into the center of who he is. He has some questions. He'd like to have a quick discussion with Jesus. He would like him to answer a few of his questions. Maybe he invited there to be like a trophy to be able to show everybody, look, I got Jesus. You know how popular he is. I got Jesus in my house. The woman, though, has been moved to the very depths of her soul. She not only has, of course, intellectually heard the message, but there are tears. There's the will. There's the whole person involved. In fact, if you look at the harmony of the gospel right around this time before this would have happened, if you look at how the gospels work together, Jesus was crying out in the streets, come all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Imagine this prostitute heard this and believed him came. They both intellectually, their mind was there. Something in her said, I got to get to him and it's okay for me to. There's permission. There's faith. And obviously Simon had the same intellection, but his whole heart wasn't in like the woman. He comes see with his head. She comes with her whole being. He'll address Jesus only with his intellect and questions And she addresses him with everything. Let's put it another way. So like another symptom. So you can kind of see the difference between the two. And this is is important for us to understand as we're kind of getting in the scripture. Because a lot of Christians or a lot of people have this idea of Christianity. That a Christian is someone who's interested in Christ. Who studies the Bible. Reads the Bible. Prays. Every once in a while goes to church. And that's kind of the idea. But here's the deal. Both of them are like this but there's something different. Both of them show some kind of interest. So why the difference in approach? This is what we need to understand. So you've got Simon as a Pharisee. He probably thought it was just so great to have Jesus in his house. Man, I got him. So they're both saying this, I want Jesus into my life. I'm inviting you to speak. I'm listening to you. In a sense, they're both in church. They're both sitting there. They both say that they believe in Jesus, again, and not like other Pharisees that didn't want to have anything to do with him. So there's some type of belief in his teachings or who he was to have him around. But there's some real difference. In one case, Simon comes detached with his head only. She comes with her whole heart. So Simon stays. Here's the deal. He stays in control. Simon is kind of like interviewing Jesus. You ever been in an interviewing process? He's like sitting down with Jesus. He's like, Jesus, so I've been looking at you. I've seen your miracles. It's really impressive. I like what you've done here. Um, I've heard your teaching. It's really remarkable. There's something about how you talk and people that follow you. I'm trying to figure out right now, though, whether it would be advantageous for me to have you in my life as a guide, as a consultant. So would you fill out these forms, please? In other words, Simon's in control. See, Jesus is the applicant. He's interviewing Jesus to see what he thinks. And a lot of us have that idea of control, but the problem with control is there's no commitment. In order to stay in control, I actually can't give a commitment to something, ultimately. 
See, because if I'm in this interview process, I'm trying to get to know Jesus. I'm trying to figure him out, but I'm religious. Like, I've got my things figured out. I'm trying to see if we're, uh, you know, compatible, if, they, if this is good, if, if, if you can hang out with me or not. Uh, you, you're going to have this interview process, but you can't show your hand or else you're not going to have any negotiations. You have to kind of stay in control of the situation. You couldn't let go like this woman in worship, God forbid. So you kind of have interviews, and, and in the interview, we don't commit to the job. We don't commit to the relationship to one another yet, and a lot of us approach Jesus this way. But the problem is he can't be approached this way because Jesus is not just an applicant to be a consultant in your life. Jesus is not someone you can just interview for a job of Lord and Savior. You have to understand. Instead, you have here... What the woman does, she makes a full-on commitment, and there's no way to even begin to talk to Jesus unless you're willing to come with your whole being and make this commitment. So let me give you a definition of commitment so we're on the same page. Commitment, I like this, I like this definition. A commitment is putting your weight on something to the point of vulnerability. So here's the deal. If you're not vulnerable you won't fully commit, and if you don't fully commit, you won't have a relationship. Is that true? Isn't that true everywhere? I remember playing football. When I first started playing football, uh, fourth grade, Pop Warner, they put me as a linebacker, and linebacker's tough. You've got, you've got the, the defensive line, and you've got, of course, the safeties, the cornerbacks, the secondary. And the thing about a linebacker being in the middle is you have to commit one way or the other. Because if there's a run, you have to commit, and you have to be vulnerable, which means you have to lean in, and you have to make a commitment. Am I going to go forward? Am I going to go back? And it might cost you something, that vulnerability, because you leverage your weight going in one direction. And you have to be able to do that in order to win the game, but it could cost you because if you decide, oh, it's a run, I'm gonna go after it, I'm gonna leverage my momentum this way and it's a pass, you can lose it. And then it makes you shy to be vulnerable again. And yet the best players, right, can, like a goldfish, 10 seconds forget, as Ted Lasso says, forget about it and have to move on. But this idea of vulnerability is a part and attached to commitment. And that's the way it is. There's no commitment without vulnerability, but without commitment you lose. Isn't the same true in every relationship? If you wanna really know somebody, you have to open up to them. If you wanna get involved in church, you have to open up. There's levels of commitment. You have to be personally involved. But here's the deal. That vulnerability is tough, especially when we've been hurt. As soon as you're affectionate with somebody, here's the deal. They can twist you. As soon as you open up a little bit about yourself, they could use that to abuse you. So a lot of us, right, have been in a position where we've been used, we've been abused, we've been hurt. And so we hate vulnerability. I'm not going to be open. So you don't make yourself vulnerable, so there's no commitment and you don't commit yourself to anyone, and you'll be tremendously lonely. And see, we hate this. There's no relationship without commitment, but no commitment without vulnerability, but we hate vulnerability. We are in a pickle. So what we do is we stay detached. We interview people, 
keep our options open, keep our calendar open. Anybody else? Just me? Okay. The problem is you can't do that in life without losing relationship. Here's the question. How much more is that true vulnerability, commitment, if you want to have the relationship with the ultimate person, he's going to require the ultimate commitment. This woman does it. Simon will not. She's full out there. He will not. In this amazing way, she, she brings this alabaster flask of perfume. And typically, this was recognized in the situation, um, and it's very probable, as we said, that she's a prostitute. And they would wear this around their neck like a necklace so that they would have um, kind of this approach, this ability to have perfume. People knew who they were at that time if they did that. And this was part of their alluring. It was part in the culture of what made them attractive. It was, in a sense, kind of their cosmetic. It was part of her job, and it was a tool of the trade. So here's what she's doing. She takes her hair down. She takes the flask off. And for a woman, listen, at the time to take your hair down, you could get a divorce for that. It's so scandalous. So this woman takes the tool of her trade off, pours it at her feet, takes her hair down, in essence saying this, I have a better use now for this. You're talking vulnerability. All of me. I've got a better use for this. She's changing the direction of her life. And I know a lot of us might think, because we do this so often, I can get Jesus in my life. Just give me some personal peace and inspiration. I want to feel good. But the fact is, there's no way to relate to Jesus without becoming radically vulnerable. A naked man on a cross dying for us. Radical. There's no way. That means we have to make him master of everything, and he deserves everything. Your job, your behavior, your ethics, the way you use your money, your relationships, your sexuality, ooh, your thought life, your intellectual life, everything. There's no way, listen, this is the problem, to stay in control and relate to Jesus. And you look at him, you look at her, you look at what she's done. She's a prostitute. If there's anyone in this room who wants to compare yourself to her, do that right now. Think about it. Everyone in this room has little flasks around their neck, every one of us. The things that are important to us. You're going to pour them out at somebody or someone's feet, something's feet. There's something in someone, in all of us, that you're going to live for. So who gets your heart? This is, this is where Jesus is going. Who do you live for utterly and entirely is the question of this parable. That's why it's quiet, because this is what it means to be a Christian. Another way to put it is she took this flask off her neck, which was probably the most valuable thing she had financially. It was her way of saying to, to Jesus this, Lord Jesus, you are not one more thing in my life with everything else. You're more important than anything else to me. You're the most valuable thing. Simon, though, the Pharisee, comes at it a way a lot of us do or a lot of us have grown up doing and they say this okay Jesus I'm interested I've had diets I've had this little mind control method 
I've had reparenting support groups. Maybe Jesus will help too. One more thing. This woman sits down. She says, no, that's not it. She's vulnerable. So the difference between real Christianity as we're looking at symptoms and mere religion is that religion, you use Jesus to help you get other things. In real Christianity, you say, you're everything I want. I've been pretty good, but I'm mad, the religious person says. Why? Because though I've been pretty good, I've been pretty moral, I'm still not married and I want to be. Why should I serve God? Or the religious person says, though I'm pretty good, I'm pretty moral, my parents never loved me, they hurt me, they neglected me, they abused me, why should I serve a God if he won't give me just the basic happy family? I've been pretty good, I've been pretty moral, and yet my career is in shambles, I've worked really, really hard, I've been really, really good, my nose is clean, I'm good, and yet God won't give me success, and I've worked so hard for it, why won't he? When we say this, listen, why should I serve God if he won't give me this or that? What we're really saying is this, this and that is my God. It's the real thing we live for. In other words, if you say this, if God can't have this and that, I won't have it either. If God won't let these things come into my life, which I need and I want so badly, then you can have God. And this is Simon's symptoms and problems. Here's the deal. We don't realize how revealing even this message is to our hearts. It's the difference between Simon and the woman. The woman says, I refuse to see anything as more valuable than you. I can never again be mad at you, Jesus, because there isn't something else in my life. I pour everything in my life at your feet. If I have you, I have everything I need. I have everything I want. I won't use you as a means to my end. I won't manipulate you any longer. You are not one more thing in my life. You're my Lord. This is the difference. And this is a symptom, but there's a cause because then we get into the parable that Jesus is trying to explain. And the thesis of this parable is this. You're not living, listen, you're not living a life of sacrificial love if you don't have a heart filled with peace, if you don't find it easy to love messed up people, if you don't find it possible to enjoy your life content with a peace of God, if you are critical all the time, you're complaining all the time, you're feeling sorry for yourself all the time, you're finding fault in everybody else around you all the time, it's because you don't really grasp who Jesus is in this message of the gospel. It's a harsh reality that Simon has to look at. First of all, the parallel to there shows us this, shows us the remarkable nature of sin, how deep it is. It's so much deeper than we think. The man and the woman both know they're sinners. Pharisees understood scripture, that they were sinners. That's why they're doing all the laws. That's why they're trying to obey everything. Jesus, though, in the parable makes himself, listen, he makes himself the lender. He's the lender. There's three people, the woman, Simon, the lender, two debtors, and he makes the man and the woman both debtors. Now, the woman is the 500 debtor. The man is the 50 debtor, clearly, but what's the difference between 50 and 500? A lot of times we read this and we're like, yeah, of course, 500 is so much more 50. But this is not what Jesus is saying. It's actually the opposite of what he's saying. What he's actually trying to say is this. Some of us 
may have this idea that, you know, those messed up people, those people in prison, those people who trampled the bodies Saturday or Friday night at the Astroworld Festival, those people, they need that born-again stuff. They need to repent. They need conversion. But the rest of us really just need some kind of instruction, some more moral teaching. Don't really expect me to have some kind of catharsis, mighty experience. And that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying. As I was watching the news and seeing the tragedy that happened at the Astroworld Festival thing happening, the Lord spoke to my heart as I'm looking at the news, and I'm just mad and upset. And he said, if you're more upset about the sin on the news than you are the sin in the mirror, this parable is talking about you. Those people, them, they, the real sinners, and God's going, what about you? The beauty of this illustration, though, because there is good news in it, is that you have the 50, you have the 500, but you could, you could as easily have 5 million and 50. It's not about the amount. It's both of them are in trouble. And the, the genius of Jesus in this illustration is that they're both in debt. Don't just get hung up on the number, although they're great. He was trying to speak to that, I believe, to Simon to help him kind of differentiate. But listen, he showed Simon, you are in debt too. You are a sinner too, as Simon doesn't think he is and is actually casting Jesus as the sinner. What kind of prophet is this? How often do we do this in our heart as well? It's very convicting. It's like this idea. Don't don't think of just about the amount. Think about like an illustration of somebody who was murdered. Like someone grabbed a knife, stabbed somebody in the heart, and another person like killed someone with a machine gun. It's not about how bad or bloody their body was or their murder was. They're both dead. This is what Jesus is saying. You're dead in your transgressions. Like you're, you're in debt. You're going to prison, both of you. No one is just pretty dead and one is ugly dead. They're both dead. They're in the same position. They're in the same boat. And this is what he's trying to convey to him. They were both lost. They're both in debt. He looks at me, says this, I want you to know you are in the same position as she is. This is why he's offended. You are unable to make good on your debt. You're as liable to punishment. You're as condemned. There's no difference between the two of you in the kingdom of God right now. You both need a lender. Now, here's the problem, though, because we don't understand a view of sin. So I want to kind of help with this idea of sin. The difference between Simon and the woman, remember this is what we're looking at, is one understood kind of what sin was. The idea that Jesus is the lender. Everything these people has comes from Jesus ultimately in this parable. Everything you and I have is on loan. Our body, our brains, our capacities. And you might say, no, 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 I've worked really, really hard. Here's the question, though. Did you work hard for your talents? Did you work hard for your IQ? Did you work hard for your health? You worked hard to earn things that were absolutely given to you, in essence. The Bible says God gave you everything. You owe him everything. And therefore, we must live a life of, here's the hard word, dependence. We have to be dependent on him. The things ourselves are not our own. Love the Lord your God. Live a life of dependence. But this is the problem because we define sin not as, as robust as it is. Here's a definition of sin. Sin is the desire to live independent of God. 
We're from America. We love our independence. But sin is the desire to do this. Deny everything. Deny that everything you have is on loan. Sin is the desire to refuse to acknowledge the fact that everything you have is a loan and everything you, that you really have belongs to God. You want to live independently from him. I want to live independently from him. I want to be my own master. We want to be our own master, just like Simon, to not have to depend on him at all. But we get how those other people have to. Now, here's kind of two basic ways we do this in this story. We do it through religion, being really, really good and earning my way. Or we do it through the rejection of religion. And we all get the idea of rejection. You reject God, of course. You don't care. But it's the religious people that he is going after because they're working and justifying themselves. The question is, will you look at your heart? Can we look at our heart today and see that sin is deeper than we thought? Because if we don't get to the depths of it, we won't be so elated by the grace. We will just go, of course, grace. I deserve it. The depths of sin causes us to be elated by the incredible grace of our lender. See, we want to be in control, so we want things to work according to our blueprint, especially with our independent spirits. So why are we worried? Why can't we sleep at night? Am I talking to anybody? Whether you're a Christian or not, think about it. We have to look inside to see the depths of our sin. Our sin is our desire to be independent of God, and we hate dependence. Even after we become Christians, this is so deeply rooted that it continues to plague us. We just hate the idea of dependence. That's the reason why some of us hate when things aren't going our way. We, we've chosen a career, and our work's not working out. We don't know whether we're able to keep our job. We don't know whether anyone is really going to ever marry us or love us or accept us. We don't know whether our marriage is going to last. We like it when we're in control and everything's going according to plan. And as soon as it doesn't go to plan, as soon as we're flying blind, we hate it. And the first person that gets it is God. Why are we mad? Why are we so angry? Most of the time when people are mad... When we're mad at God, they'll sit down. This is when I get called in for counsel. Like, I'm frustrated with God, and I get it because I've been there. Like, I have the Simon tendencies of my heart as well that I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to give. And at the crux of it, I want control. I don't want to give up control. I don't want to be crazy like this person. And somebody will come into my office. I'm mad that I have to be dependent. In essence, they're mad at God, but they're saying I'm mad I have to be dependent on his wisdom instead of my own. And then what do we usually do? We beat ourselves up and we say we can't forgive ourselves. I just never, I'll never be able to forgive myself. But th- this sounds really noble, but in essence, what we say when we say we'll never be able to forgive ourselves, we say this I don't want to be dependent on anyone's bleeding charity. I don't want anyone to have to cover for me. I don't want God's bleeding charity. I should be good enough. I should be disciplined enough. I should have enough more morals and I should be smart. And we just beat ourselves up because we refuse to be dependent on God's forgiveness, on our lender and the grace of God. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. In our, our natural condition, until Jesus comes and just transforms us and opens our eyes, either through religion or through the rejection of religion, We see with both of these characters, 
that we seek independence. We see the bottom of our sin that Jesus wants to get to the root of. The religious person, though technically maybe not breaking the law as often, the Ten Commandments as often as the irreligious person, those people, God can open our eyes to see the depths of our sin and not just try to use religion to be our savior or good works or politics or whatever ideology we have. So here's the deal. What Jesus shows them is the difference between him and her, the difference between 50 and the 500 is not that she needs more salvation than him. But listen, here's the difference. She has realized she needs salvation more. We've seen this before. People justify their actions so they don't have to come into that realization. The real reason her life is transformed and his is not, she knows she is a sinner. She knows the death. The reason why we don't have our joy and we can walk away today just like whatever is because we don't see the depth of it, which makes us not see the beauty of the cross. So here's the deal. She is amazed and she's changed. Simon and some of us like Simon are detached We're intellectual about it. We cover our tracks. We have all the reasonings. We're trying to stay in control. We might be interested in Jesus, but the reason why today or another day we go away empty like Simon and our lives never fully changed is some of us may never believe and never really been a believer and been moved to this kind of depth. We've really never seen stuff that happened to the woman, but we've never embraced Christ the way we should. Some of us just think sin, as I'm closing, as just like moral failure to obey some rules instead of seeing what we're talking about today and what Jesus is trying to expose in our heart that we're seeking to live our own independent life. We don't want God for God. We don't see how beastly we've been to God, how rebellious we are, because that just makes us feel bad. Nor do we see to the extent of what this has done to creation, to our relationships, to ourselves. And here's the deal, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of never wanting to depend on him, in spite of constantly complaining about the fact that my life is not going the way I want it to go, he's been sitting there all along going, if you come, I'll pay. If you come to me, I'll forgive. So let's conclude. Some of us are like Simon, honestly, and I hope you can see what I'm saying. You know the difference between the real difference Simon and the woman. The woman has this personal relationship now with God. Simon just has an intellectual one. Simon says his prayers. The woman prays. Simon believes intellectually. The woman worships. The woman knows him. She has a personal relationship. He has an intellectual one. And the point of this is to ask ourselves, which one do I have? 
Have I missed it? Have I not allowed my trust and vulnerability of the most vulnerable creature? Allow my trust to grow in him and realize my sin and I need the lender. Have I slipped back into patterns like we tend to do of simonness, of demandingness, and forget that sin is this desire to be independent? I slip back and forget the depths of our sin. This is why we constantly say, you need to be reminded more than instructed because as Jesus is rebuking the churches in Revelation, he says, you forgot your first love because he's about love. He's about relationship, not just duty. These Simon patterns that plague our heart, what do we do about them? All we can do, listen, all we can do is repent and rejoice in our lender. Have faith in our lender. Have faith in this amazing God who loves this prostitute and uses her an example to rebuke this religious leader. And we have to look at our hearts and go, am I playing? Because let me tell you, in our culture today, you ain't going to make it if you're playing the Christian game. You will not make it. And Jesus says, are you vulnerable? Are you committed? Are you leaning into my grace? Or are you playing games? He will not leave you the same because he's that good. Will you pray with me? Father, we bless you. We thank you for your story, your parable. We thank you for your grace, Lord, that it doesn't end with a God condemning us. It doesn't end with just the hopelessness of our sin as we see the weightiness and the darkness of it that's deeper than just what the, the scab shows as we see the cancer that's invaded our hearts that we don't want you for you and yet you come and display a love on the cross to show us that you want us not while we were beautiful, not while we're great, not in perfection, but while we were sinners, you died for us, God. Let us trust and be vulnerable and commit our hearts to you. Be unashamed of your gospel like this woman. In Jesus' name.